All right, well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11? If you're new with us, we welcome you. It's good to see you at Calvary, and we're just letting you know we're working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. We are in John 11, looking at the greatest miracle that Jesus performed, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, so far in our, our outline of John 11, we have looked at the critical friend, verses 1 to 5, the callous Savior, verse 6, the concerned disciples, verses 7 through 16, and we find ourselves in that fourth main point, the confused sisters. Now, for the sake of the new folks, let me just explain to you why I named this point, uh, that title, the confused sisters. It's really because of Jesus' response to the urgent message they sent to him, pleading with him to come quickly. Lazarus, his dear friend, was sick, and uh, very sick, uh, to the, near the point of death. And uh, at the time the girl sent the message to Jesus, he was in Bethabar with his disciples down by the Jordan River. And uh, that was a two-day journey from, uh, to Bethany. So you would think he would want to get going right away. And yet he purposely waits a couple of days and then tells his disciples, let's make the two-day journey. Not exactly uh, the actions of a dear friend. Uh, quick, Come quickly. Lazarus, your good friend is sick. He's at the point of death. Okay, I'll get there when I get there. Yeah, and it's like, wow. Okay, so, you know, that behavior was so unlike Jesus. I mean, Mary and Martha had seen him respond to human need and suffering maybe thousands of times. They followed him around in his public ministry for three and a half years. And uh, this was so unlike Jesus to delay like this. So it seems so callous and indifferent. That's why uh, I said they were confused, greatly confused by his actions. So verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. So Lazarus was now dead four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again again in the resurrection at the last day jesus said to her i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he may die he shall live and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this now as we said last week verses 25 and 6 are some of the greatest in the bible if you weren't here we spent a lot of time on those two verses you can go online and listen to the study. So verse 27, after the Lord said to Martha, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she said she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, 
but was in a place where Martha met him. So he's kind of hanging out on the outskirts of town. Why did Martha call Mary secretly? Because it was things were really heating up. The last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, uh, the uh, scribes and Pharisees picked up stones to kill him because he made one of these statements that he and the Father were one, and they considered that blasphemy, so they tried to kill him. So they had to leave town quickly, went down by uh, Bethabara, did some baptizing down there, not Jesus, but his disciples. And so the girls knew things were had he, really heating up. And uh, they didn't want, Martha didn't want to call any unnecessary attention to Jesus because she knew that the scribes and Pharisees had kind of put a warrant out for his arrest kind of a thing. And they were looking to have him arrested so they could kill him. So Martha comes in quietly, says to Mary. Now, she's sitting there with some people. They're mourning. But uh, she kind of takes her on the side, as I would imagine, and whispers in her ear, uh, the teacher's here. He's on the outskirts of town. He's calling for you. So, you know, after hearing that, uh, Martha, uh, excuse me, it says um, that uh, verse, um, verse 31, Then the Jews who were with her in the house uh, and comforting her, when they saw that she arose, quickly went out following her and said she is going to the tomb to weep there. Uh, then when Mary came uh, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Mary of Bethany was a deeply spiritual woman. I'm convinced of that. Her sister Martha, if she was saved, and I think maybe, probably she was, but she was not spiritually at the place where Mary was at. Martha was given over to service, which is not bad, but it's not the best. Mary served, but she didn't love the service as much as the fellowship with her Lord. So she would serve, and then she would come quickly back uh, to hear Jesus' words. In fact, one of the reasons she was so deeply spiritual is that she's mentioned three times in the Gospels. Every time she is mentioned, she is seen sitting at Jesus' feet. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, She sat at his feet and listened to his word. That would be Luke 10. She fell down at his feet and poured out her sorrow. That would be John 11. And then John 12, she came to his feet to give him her praise and worship. You can't sit at Jesus' feet, soaking up his words, uh, worshiping him with your whole heart, and not pick up a few things. Mary was the only one who was really prepared for Jesus' death. Why do I say that? Because she's, she's going to anoint his death next chapter, anoint him for death uh, using some very expensive fragrant oil that she had saved probably for her dowry. We'll talk about that uh, in a few weeks. But she was the only, the disciples, morning of the resurrection, uh, the women come back, the tomb is empty. Ah, you're crazy. You know, and, and, and they finally, a few get up and run to the tomb and find it was empty. They were talking, taken off guard, even though Jesus had told them three and maybe four times that he was going to Jerusalem where he would be crucified the third day, he would rise again. And yet, it went one or not the other. A lot of people hear Jesus. They come to church and they hear the words of Jesus. But they don't really listen. Jesus indicted the generation that, you know, saw, heard him preach. Um, this people, you know, they, 
they, they, they hear, but they don't listen. Um, and in vain they worship me is kind of thing, okay? So Mary heard and she listened. And she was prepared for his death and uh, anointed his body for burial. Now, guys, that brings us to the fifth main point of this chapter, a point I'm calling the compassionate God. The com and I'll tell you, you'll see why in a moment why I'm calling it that, the compassionate God. <clears throat> I call the second main point in our outline of John 11 the callous Savior. But that wasn't true of Jesus. He wasn't callous toward human need and suffering. It was only the perception that some have gotten from reading the story, again, how Mary and Martha sent an urgent word to Jesus that Lazarus is good, dear friend, was very ill. Uh, you better come quickly or he's not going to make it. And he, he hangs out another couple days before making the journey. And so people read that, skeptics I'm talking about. And in their mind, this is not a compassionate man. Uh, this is a callous man. This is an indifferent man. Who, you know, who has a good friend and uh, you're told, come quickly. And, of course, Jesus had the ability to heal, the power to heal Lazarus. But he purposely waits a couple days, makes the two-day journey. But this time, Lazarus is dead and buried four days. And many see in that not a compassionate man, but a very callous man. But we know Jesus Christ never did anything without first checking with his father. Mark 1.35 tells us that he got up every morning before sunrise to spend time with his father and to receive instructions for the day. He never did anything but what he first checked with the father. And no doubt it was the father, even though it's not specified directly, we know that the father told Jesus, don't leave right away, wait a couple of days. This was all orchestrated by the Father to bring maximum glory to the Son to bring people down the road to Jesus as their Savior. That's what the main goal was. God was using, when, when, when Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death, he wasn't saying Lazarus wasn't going to die, he just wasn't going to stay dead. But it was all being orchestrated by the Father uh, to bring about maximum glory for him and maximum results with regard to the gospel being preached. And so Jesus was not callous. But some have believed him to be a callous man from what they read in this story. Now look, I understand that for some, perception is everything. Forget about the facts. It's only what I think about the situation that matters. Those are my facts. For some, perception is everything. That perception to them is reality, causing them to judge people in wrongful ways based on their perception of the situation. This is very true when it comes to people's perception of God based on circumstances and how they will use those circumstances to form a perception of God that is not really biblical. In their mind, it's the truth, but they don't really go to the Bible. They don't know God in truth. They're not born again. And so they, and they don't read the Bible to find out what God has really said about himself or how God has acted in certain situations like through the life of Jesus and so on. But in their minds, they have looked at the situation quickly, formulated an opinion, perception, and they run with it. Verse 32, then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, 
she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, guys, this is one of those times I wish I could hear the inflection in a biblical figure's voice. I mean, were these words of Mary the soft, heartbroken words of someone who genuinely felt let down by her Lord? Or were they the firm, cross words of someone who was, you know, reprimanding a subordinate for dropping the ball and not for obeying an urgent command? I say that because there are some people who talk to Jesus like that. They have kind of been taught that they're the master and he's the a servant. And I need to, you know, tell him what I want. And he'll do my bidding. They won't maybe put it like that, but that's exactly the theology they've bought into. They're the master. Their words have power. You confess whatever you want, stick Jesus' name at the end, and he's got to run get it for you. That wasn't Mary of Bethany. I'm convinced of that. I'm totally convinced of I understand Mary, and I think I do. It was the former. She felt let down. She was heartbroken. Her Lord, who she loved with all of her heart, didn't act in a way that was consistent with what she had seen in him, how he treated many sick and hurting people. Verse 33, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The Greek word used of Mary's weeping and the weeping of the others who came from her house to the tomb of Lazarus to mourn is the Greek word klio. And it's a word that means a loud wailing, a loud wailing. Let me talk to you briefly about Jewish culture because you need to understand this if you're going to fully appreciate the story. It gets into the way Jewish people mourn, at least back then, when somebody they loved died. All right? When they lost a dear loved one or a dear friend, they would all gather and they would mourn over uh, a dead loved one or a dead friend for 30 days. The first seven days were the most intense. They were so intense that friends and family would actually stay at the house uh, of the departed one to comfort the family 24-7. So that first week was very intense, and we find ourselves in the first week of Lazarus' death. Four days has passed, okay? In Jewish culture, though, as a sign of deep love, affection, and respect for a dead person, they would wail loudly. They would wail loudly. And if the family was a well-to-do family, and I believe Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were a well-to-do family, they were on the wealthy side. They were well-connected uh, in many ways, as we've talked about. And so it was customary for a wealthy family to actually hire professional mourners to come and to wail. I mean, this is the scene I believe that verse 33 is talking about. 
you had all the friends and family of Lazarus gathered there, mourning, wailing, Clio. And then the family, no doubt, had hired professional mourners, and they were wailing. Now look, when some people in America read a story like that, because this is not our cultural thing, right, to carry on like this. They read this, and they're prone, and I've had people roll their eyes when I've taught this story, and I've, and, and I've taught, told how they wailed and carried on, and people would roll their eyes like, oh, big show, right? People are so dramatic. It's what's such theatrics, right? And, and I don't believe that was true. I can't vouch for the hired mourners, okay? I'm not saying they had deep affection for the departed. It was a job for them, but definitely family and friends. It was from the heart. And in that culture, the louder the wailing, the more they were expressing their love and respect for the dead. So I don't see anything hypocritical here at all is my point, okay? But I want you to, I want you to see this because it's very important. What I really want you to see, though, uh, is uh, I want you to see the difference between the weeping of Mary, her family, and friends, and then the weeping of Jesus. Again, the Greek word that describes their weeping, Mary, her friends, the mourners, the professionals, again is klio, a loud wailing. But the Greek word used here in verse 35 when it says Jesus wept is dakruo. If I'm not mistaken, it's the only place in the New Testament where this Greek word is used. And it's a word that means to silently burst into tears. Now, if you don't understand this, and this is why I want to I sketch it out for you. If you just read your English Bibles, Mary's weeping, the crowd is weeping, Jesus is weeping, everyone's weeping. But there's something going on here is a major difference, and I want you to see it, all right? Guys, here we have pictured, I believe, one of the most powerful and poignant scenes you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Because here we have pictured the God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ standing in the presence of death, so overwhelmed with grief that all he can do is bow his head and start sobbing. Have you ever experienced sorrow so deep that you couldn't express it in words? And all you could do was sob and sob in silence? There is a grief that comes from so deep inside, it can't be verbalized. And if you've never experienced it, you don't understand the depth of it. This is not the kind of grief that you feel when you park your new car at the supermarket and come back and it's got a ding in it. Well, maybe for some, I don't know. This is the kind of sorrow that comes when you lose somebody very dear to you. Uh, a wife, a husband, a spouse, excuse me, a child. Maybe a dear, dear friend. This is the scene we have here, okay? This is the scene we have here with the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the universe in human form, as he burst into silent sobs with tears running down his cheeks and falling onto his heaving chest. Again, you're just sobbing, and it's like <laughs> you can't even breathe. It's just coming from a place that you can't even, it, nothing, words can't do it justice. That is the picture of Jesus Christ. 
Now the crowd thought he was crying over Lazarus. Crowds are usually clueless. Beware of the crowd mentality, right? You know, we talk about herd mentality with the COVID virus. There is a crowd mentality. Be careful you don't get sucked into the crowd mentality. Well, everyone believes it's good to wear masks. That's a red flag, okay? You know, I mean, everyone believes this is how it is. You know, it's a red flag. Uh, can the crowd, people say, can, can the majority be wrong? Folks, the majority is seldom right. Be careful of the majority of the crowd, right? Think for yourself. Here, the crowd meant well. Again, their perception was off, all right? They saw what they saw with their eyes, and they jumped to a conclusion, and they made a statement. I don't hold them accountable for that. We all do it. Just be careful, right? So here's Jesus sobbing his heart out, and the crowd, verse 36, said, oh, see how he loved him. Well, I'm not going to say Jesus didn't. Verse 5 tells us he agaped Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He loved them with the love of God. True. But those weren't tears of grief over Lazarus. I mean, Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? He knew what he was going to do. No, those weren't tears of grief over, grief over a dead friend. They were tears of sorrow, listen, over a lost and dying world. Over a lost and dying world. Here we see God. Here we see God weeping over the consequences of sin, of which death and sorrow were a main part. Consequences that God never wanted mankind to bear. You might be thinking, well, Pastor, how do you know that's what's going on here? Fair question. Look at verse 33 again. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, wailing, and the Jews who came with her wailing, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now, guys, the phrase, that phrase, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, doesn't mean that Jesus was simply deeply touched or moved with sympathy at the sight. No, that is a very intense phrase in the Greek. And it means he was enraged in his spirit and moved with indignation. It is the same word that appears in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew done in 270 B.C. by 70 scholars. That's what Septuagint means. And they translated the Hebrew into Greek because Greek had become kind of a dead language. And nobody spoke it, therefore they couldn't read their own scriptures. So they commissioned 70, uh, 70 scholars to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And in Daniel 11, verse 30, they put this Greek word, uh, word here for this phrase. And it, in, in the Septuagint, it's translated violent displeasure. Violent displeasure. You say, what was the Lord so angry about? If that's the Lord, tell him I'm trying my best. <laughs> he knew what he was getting into when he called me. All right. 
All right. So you say, well, what was the Lord so angry about? I believe, and I'm not alone. I believe he was angry over all the pain and suffering and all the sorrow that sin had brought into the world, death being the greatest and most painful consequence of all. A wonderful commentator and writer named G. Campbell Morgan, who is with the Lord, commented on this when he said, and I quote, The whole situation was that he stood in the presence of death. Death was the outcome of sin. All the wrath of God surged through him in the presence of the whole of human misery resulting from human sin and issuing in death and the breaking of hearts, and he was moved with indignation, end quote. And that indignation, that anger, gave way to sorrow as Jesus bursts into silent tears that came coursing down the cheeks of God in sadness and grief for all the suffering. Listen, that sin had brought into this world and, of course, the death that was a result of it. Again, in verse 36, the Jews said, See how he loved him. And again, Jesus wasn't crying over the death of Lazarus as those who were standing there thought. As I said, in a few minutes, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. No, he was sobbing over all the pain and suffering that sin had brought into the world, all because of our rebellion. This is not the world God wanted for us to live in. He was standing there at that moment. John opened up his, his gospel with, Chapter 1, verse 3. And all things were made by him, Jesus Christ. And without him, nothing was made that was made. This is the one who made it all. You go back to Genesis chapter 1. After the six days of creation, God said, and it is good. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. After all six days, he took a step back. Genesis 1, 27 or 8. And God saw it was all good. God made a good world for us to live in, a world free of sin and suffering and sickness and death. Chapter 3 of Genesis, man fell. Man rebelled against God. Man did what God had forbidden. He ate the forbidden fruit. And when he did, sin rushed into man's heart, into man's soul, killing his spirit, flipping him upside down, turning him into a two-dimensional being, no longer made in the image of God per se, body, soul, and spirit, spirit connecting with God's spirit for fellowship. Uh, that was done now. Sin had opened up a giant gulf between God and man. And not only that, Paul tells us in Romans 8, the whole creation became corrupted at that point. Paul tells us that the creation, kind of like a person personifying creation, is, the creation is waiting for its redemption. What does that mean? Well, we'll get to it in a moment. Hang in there. I'm just saying, here is the God of the universe in human form. The one who spoke the universe into existence and gave us a perfect world to live in. This is not what he wanted. This is not the world he wanted us for, to live in. To me, guys, this 
This is maybe just me. I don't know. But this, to me, is one of the most powerful scenes in all the New Testament that gives us a look into the heart of Jesus, into the heart of God, and how sin and all the suffering it has brought into this world hurts the heart of God. I mean, here we see a picture of the God of the universe again in the person of Jesus Christ, so heartbroken over the pain that man's rebellion had caused the human race that he just he probably shook his head and bowed his head and started sobbing uncontrollably. It didn't have to be this way. It did not have to be this way. But a good God making a good thing like the creation wanted to fill it with people who would love him from their heart freely. And that's why he gave to us a free will. Did he know Adam was going to blow? Of course he did. Revelation 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ in the mind of God was on Calvary's cross before the foundation of the world. But that doesn't lessen the pain. God having given, given man a free will and Adam and Eve chose to exercise their free will in a rebellion against God and ate the forbidden fruit and everything crashed. Everything that was good was not corrupted. Every time I read this passage and I see our precious Jesus sobbing like this, it really gets to me. You know, I only saw my dad cry once in my entire life when I was about 9 or 10. And it so impacted me, I've never forgotten it. I, one thing I take from this passage, when I see Jesus sobbing like this, People say, does God care about our suffering? Yes, of course he cares. I don't know what you take from this passage if you don't come away with that. But understand, not only did he feel our pain, he did something about it, didn't he? Jesus came to the earth and became one of us to die on the cross for our sins. For all our sins. Turn to Isaiah 53. Of course, you all know it. Let me read it to you out of the NLT second edition. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Does God really care about my suffering? Absolutely. Verse 4, Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, the sins of us all. And someday, guys, when he comes to the earth the second time, he is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes forever. 
Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain, because all these things will be gone forever. Now, guys, there are, there are many today that would respond to all of this like some of these responded here in verse 37. Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Talk about perception. I perceive in their statement a veiled indictment. In this statement, they are actually blaming Jesus for Lazarus' death. I mean, if Jesus could have kept Lazarus from dying by healing him, didn't he heal thousands of people? This was a dear friend. Why didn't he rush to Bethany and heal him? Because God was going to get more glory out of raising a guy that was dead for four days than healing just another sickness. But they didn't know that. The clueless crowd... You know, they, they, they don't know the deep things of God. And so here they make a common indictment. It's rooted in ignorance and stupidity. But if Jesus had healed so many of so many sicknesses, why couldn't he have healed Lazarus and kept him from dying? Isn't he kind of to blame? Wouldn't that make Lazarus' death, you know, Jesus' fault? That's the kind of logic that many people use in the face of tragedy. They just blame God. They just blame God. They reason God could have prevented this tragedy, but because he didn't, you know, he's to blame for allowing it. It's his fault. We're living at a time, I think, probably more than any other in our nation's history, where people have perfected the art of passing the buck, it's become an art form. They will find a way to spin the situation where they are innocent and everyone else but them is guilty. Starting with the political scene. Well, let's not go there. Okay? We're living in a time, and it's not new, it's just been, it's reached, it's, it's a, reached a crescendo. You know, it's, it's reached... Uh, you know, a, a place where it's like this has been, again, perfected to an art form with some. Again, the logic of so many when it comes to human suffering goes something like this. If God is real and if he is a good and loving God, why does he allow sickness and disease, poverty and famine to continue? Children born deformed or handicapped, dying of cancer and hunger. If God is real and if he really is a good and loving God, then the world, world wouldn't be in the mess it's in. It's his fault. Not our fault. Because, you know, it's never our fault. It's God's fault. But take another look at this picture. Jesus sobbing over the consequence of sin. I mean, the lives that have been destroyed by disease, by death. I mean, I believe the Lord still cries today. I really do. I believe the Lord looks at people's lives and the choices they're making 
and the collateral damage. We never sin alone. Come on. There's always a ripple effect. There's always collateral damage. And I see the Lord in my mind looking at lives of people that he loves, that he died for, that he wants to give the best life now and the greatest eternity possible. And they're making choices. They're drinking themselves to death. The opioid crisis is killing people by the thousands. You go to Chicago, God forbid you should go. But every weekend, you know, 40, 50 people get shot and a whole bunch die every single week. Kids can't play outside. Even kids inside are being killed by stray bullets. This is all the result of sin. As you see the gangbangers and the drug dealers fighting over drug turf and killing people, spraying funerals with bullets. They don't care who they kill. We need more gun laws, they tell us. Now we need heart transplants. We need folks to get new hearts transplanted into them when they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. If God cares so much, why doesn't he do something about all the suffering in the world? Ignorant statement by blind people. Someone has said that the word compassion comes from a root that means to get into the skin of another. The God of compassion is this main point. To get into the skin of another, that's exactly what the incarnation was all about. God caring so much that he did something about our suffering by becoming a man by literally getting into our skin. God Almighty didn't just feel sorry for us when the human race fell. He had compassion on us. In other words, he did something. He climbed into our skin, becoming a man to die for the sins of man. Why doesn't God do something about all the evil and injustice in the world? Why, why doesn't he put an end to disease and famine and handicap and death? Folks, that's exactly what he is doing. That is exactly what he is doing. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't happen someday, and I believe someday soon. Yeah, the world is a mess. You're not going to get any argument from me. The world is a total mess. You know why? Because man can't govern himself. Oh, we try, don't we? I tried for many years. I didn't run my life off a cliff like some, but it was pretty bashed up as I kept hitting walls and bearing the consequence of bad decisions and sinful behavior and so on. It wasn't until I relinquished control of my life to Jesus Christ and he came in and he began to lead my life that my life began to have meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment the world's a mess but God is working to change that by inviting people the people in this fallen world to become his children and to live with him forever in his kingdom folks there is a new world coming 
a new world is coming. And let me just finish by asking you, will you be a part of that new world, of that solution that's coming, or are you going to be a part of the problem for the rest of your life? I mean, will you go on living in rebellion against God, compounding the problems of this fallen world? Or will you accept Jesus as your Savior and begin living a life that honors Him? Look, folks, the story isn't over yet. People want to look at this world and say, and, and, and right now at this moment, well, there can't be a God. Look at this world. It's such a mess. If he was real and he was so good and loving, he'd be fixing it. Well, he is fixing it. He is fixing it. Don't judge the love and goodness of God based on a story that isn't finished yet. Turn to Revelation 21. You know the blessing about being a Christian? We get to look at the end of the book. We get to peek at the end. Right? Let's look at the end of the story. Let's look at the end of the story. Revelation 21, starting with verse 3. John said, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. When mankind corrupted this world, this universe, God didn't just enter into a fixer-upper with everything. He didn't remodel. He didn't take the scrub brush and scrub away the filth. He said, The earth is terminal. I'm not going to fix it up. I'm going to vaporize it at one point. Read 2 Peter chapter 3. He who is holding all things together by the word of his power is going to let go at one point. And everything, all the works in the, in, on the earth and all the elements are going to dissolve in zillion degree heat. Talk about a big bang. It's coming at the end. I don't think it was in the beginning. It's coming in the end. A bang so intense, the entire universe, the entire physical creation is going to be vaporized. And then the Lord is going to make a new heavens, a new earth, and a brand new city for us to live in called New Jerusalem, the redeemed. It will be a, a world and a universe that has never been tainted by sin. I can't even tell you what that's like. I, I can't, I will be able to travel at, I believe, at the speed of thought. Light, that's too slow. But we will live in a universe that has never been touched by sin. A place, a, maybe a different even dimension we can't even fathom right now. Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is what? Okay, now it's finished. Okay, now it's finished. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of life of the of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Anybody who wants to be a part of this new kingdom, drink of Jesus. In other words, receive him as your Lord and Savior. You can be a part of this. You know, you sit around and complain how bad things are. That's not gonna solve anything. It's like complaining about the weather. 
Do something about it. Reserve your place in a coming kingdom that is going to be perfect, and you're invited. Verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son, my daughter, and so on. Yeah, but pastor, what do we do right now, though? How do we live right now? I know there's a glorious future coming, a kingdom, a, an eternity with Jesus. I know that. How do I live now with all this pressure and lies and deception going on around me? Let me share with you one more scripture we'll close. Turn to Psalm 37. And again, let me read to you out of the New Living Translation, second edition. Folks, I'll be honest with you. I read Psalm 37 a lot because I get so frustrated when I watch the news or read the news. I get so worked up, either I'm going to throw something at my TV, which is expensive, or i got to run to the Word and calm down. I've had to cut back watching news. Because I need to be in the Word more. Psalm, one, Psalm 37, verse 1, Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. The New King James says, Don't fret uh, over evildoers. Their day is coming. Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. Oh, they think they're so smart. Number two, verse 2. Uh, For like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Live for Him and do what's right. Don't worry about evildoers. Don't, don't worry. God will take care of them. Our responsibility is to stay in the Word, to know what God has commanded us, and by His grace to live it out every, every day. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust Him, and He will help you. Verse 7, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about or about their wicked schemes. Can I remind you that as we move into voting day? There's a lot of wicked characters out there that are scheming big time. Guys, don't worry about that. Remember me? The great I am? I'm on the throne. Nothing is going to happen but what I allow it to happen. So just hang in there. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or don't fret about their wicked schemes. Verse 8. Stop being angry. Okay, Lord, I confess. I'm sorry. Oh, but Lord, I get so angry. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. I don't know if it's rage. It's approaching rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. A new kingdom is coming. Soon the wicked will disappear. Though you look for them, they will be gone. The lowly, the humble, will possess the land and will live in peace and prosperity. That's what's coming for us. And you know what? We have to keep our eyes on the future. And by God's grace, live in the present, but keep your eyes on the future. As Paul said, these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, 
are working in us and for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While I, while I don't look at the things which are seen, I keep my eyes on the things which are unseen. Because the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen, God's coming kingdom and so on, are eternal. That's how you get from day to day. You leave it with God. You don't worry. He's on the throne. He's sovereign. Let wicked people work their wicked works. God's got it under control. And they may win a few battles here and there. We win the war. I know because I looked at the end of the book. So may God give us grace, right? We need it in these very evil last days. But Jesus is coming. And he's going to fix it, right? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is a joy. It's a hope. We just thank you, Lord. And we ask you to give us grace to not look at the evil around us to keep our eyes on you, to stay in the word, to rejoice in your promises of a future kingdom. And Lord, just give us grace to go from day to day as a light, obeying you. And Lord, may others be drawn to us because we are a light and we're not getting down into the mud and we're not, you know, getting all angry with them and making these accusations. Lord, just give us a love for people that, uh, you know, that are living lives that are contrary to what you have said they are have been taken captive by the devil and they 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 don't know any better give them open their eyes give them grace we just thank you lord we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word we ask all this in jesus name amen